The episode you're about to hear is part one of a two-part series. Welcome to this episode of Courier Conversations. Now here's your hosts, Rudy Gray and Todd Deaton. Hello again and welcome to Courier Conversations. I'm Rudy Gray, your host today, and we have a very special guest with us. D.J. Horton, pastor of the Church at the Mill and also chairman of the South Carolina Baptist Convention Sexual Abuse Task Force. So, D.J., first of all, welcome. Thank you for having me. I look forward to spending some time with you today. Well, tell us just what it's like. I know it's been about a year of uh, work and research and prayer and toil. Uh, What's it been like working through all these different uh, ramifications of the subject? Uh, well, you know, it, it's. I would say I have mixed emotions. I've really enjoyed the journey, and uh, the team that our president, Dr. Wayne Bray, put together, um, incredible group of folks, good diversity, good representation of Baptists, especially, specifically South Carolina Baptists. So I've enjoyed that, made some good friends, uh, but the subject's pretty heavy. You know, it, it, there are times in Baptist life when we're part of things that are exciting, it's, it's really hard to have a bad day if you spend the day talking about uh, evangelism or church planting or the opportunity to be a part of a mission trip or preaching or leadership. Uh, but by default, this is a subject that is rooted in sin. And so it's it's been a, a bittersweet, uh, but always fruitful in that we felt early on that as long as we remembered the why, uh, the, the why for us has been we believe the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of South Carolina Baptists want to be as faithful as they can be. And being as faithful as you can be involves putting your church in the best possible position to minister to its community. Well, if you want to do that, you've got to be known as a place of safety, of security, a place where people trust you with their children, with their daughters, with their wives, with their sons. And so all churches are asking this question, how do we more effectively create environments for ministry where we put people's safety first? And when we keep that in mind and remember that we're trying to help that church in South Carolina do that, that's been the part that's kept us going, and it's been really encouraging, and I'm very proud of our work. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid, too, DJ, that we have a lot of uh, churches. Uh, most of our churches, overwhelming number of our churches, are smaller churches, mm-hmm. And they have a hard time getting people just to volunteer to work. And I don't know that they have seen it necessary to have safety measures in place before now. And then now that this thing has come out, and uh, uh, nationally we had a task force, and now you're heading up the one for the South Carolina Baptist Convention, uh, I hope that maybe they're seeing the importance of doing this. What's your feelings about these smaller churches? Can they follow these guidelines as well? Well, two-part answer. I, I think they are seeing the importance of it. A, a couple of reasons. N- n- not only is the urgency of the moment, incidents in churches have been made more public. You know as well as I do that in May, when the National Task Force released their report just prior to the annual meeting, and then a few weeks later, due to a, a lot of public and political pressure, the SBC Executive Board released the quote-unquote database uh, of, of 800 or so names of individuals. The interesting thing about that that I found, uh, of course, in addition to the emotions of sorrow and being disheartened by it, almost every one of those names, when you scrolled over on that spreadsheet, there was a link to a local news story. So it was known information locally. 
I think what, what happened, though, is it became known information nationally. It wasn't something that you couldn't Google beforehand, but when you saw the body of work together, I think for a lot of churches it was rather sobering to say, you know what, this has happened in communities just like ours. And as you know, Rudy, I'm, I'm the son of a bivocational pastor. I, I grew up in a very small, several very small Southern Baptist churches. And when I think about the challenges of South Carolina Baptists, one of the greatest challenges they face is that most of our churches are small. Uh, relatively speaking, the vast majority of South Carolina Baptist churches are less than 200 people. But I also go back to what I know about South Carolina Baptist. Um, you, you don't have to be in a small church or a large church to want to be a good church, a healthy church, a faithful church. And before people are church members, their husbands, uh, their fathers, their mothers, their grandparents, they care about their own children. So I think on one hand, there is a sense of urgency. We need to be more faithful in this. Uh, on, on the other hand, I think what they will find in the report is that we've, we've done our best to collect the, the best practices that we've been able to find and then communicate them in such a way so that no matter where your church is in the journey, you know what your next step is. You know, when I think about large churches, um, it's, it's just very common to have uh, pretty uh, expansive camera systems uh, that monitor uh, the ministry and the congregation and hallways, public spaces. I know on our campus, there's a camera on you from the time you get out of your car in pretty much every space except, of course, restrooms. That's just not feasible for the average Southern Baptist church. But the average Southern Baptist church, uh, for a few dollars per volunteer, can absolutely afford to run a background check for any person who's working with minors. So it doesn't matter to me where you are today as much as is as much as what are you going to do to take the next step in helping your ch church be safer. One of the greatest things we found is that every church that was impacted by some form of sexual abuse that happened in the context of the church's ministry, uh, never thought it could happen to them. Never thought it could happen to them. Uh, they're shocked by it. I would say we should be shocked by it. As Christians, I don't take my family. I have six children. My wife and I don't bring our family to our church thinking, worrying, or with the expectation that one of my children will be a victim of some sort of molestation or assault. And, and, and I think there's reason for that. There are hundreds of thousands of people ministered to in churches all over our state who are never assaulted, never molested, always protected and loved. But the responsibility of leaders is not to just assume that nothing can ever happen. It is to assume that anytime there's a place where children and where there are minors and where there are people mixing together from diverse backgrounds who may or may not know one another for long periods of time, there's always this risk because statistically outside of the church in regards to sexual abuse, um, there's some pretty um, sobering numbers that show um, a significant portion of sexual abuse actually happens from a known family member, mm -hmm. from someone who was connected to the family, whether by blood or by being in the neighborhood. Well, if that can happen down the street, it can happen down the hallway at a church. And I, I do believe people are waking up to that. Well, I don't know if it's just me, but it seems to me like we have more of that going on now, maybe just because there's a spotlight on it. Mm -hmm. But I think the number of pedophiles has probably grown substantially 
over the last 10 years. Yeah, I can't, I don't, I, we didn't go into any national statistics about that. I will say that one of the things that I was uh, uh, disheartened about was the statistics of the number of sexual abuse incident instances that are never reported are pretty mind-blowing. And the very small percentage that are actually reported, charges are filed, a case is brought to court, a trial is had, and a conviction is brought is minuscule because it so often happens in the confidentiality, the privacy, uh, in seclusion, and therefore it's very difficult to get someone convicted when we have two conflicting reports. And so, but that also means that churches can work really hard to prevent environments where that ever takes place. Churches need to be careful. We can never make guarantees to people. We, we can't guarantee anything. Uh, but we can guarantee that we will do everything in our power to show due diligence in the preparation of environments and in the training of volunteers uh, to make sure that people feel safe and they feel safe for good reason. Okay, now after this report is presented to the convention, I understand you'll have to go to the executive board first and once it passes through there then at the meeting in november the annual meeting it'll go before the messengers that's correct now so you're going to give them something mm -hmm. that's full of best practices and and all of these kind of things that they can utilize in their churches mm -hmm. how many uh, specific uh, points are you going to present uh in this report I, I thought you may ask that i actually brought this is a copy of 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 the draft um so if you think about reports in, in Baptist life, they can take on a lot of uh, different uh, forms and shapes. So I, I'm happy to share with you the format of, of the way this will work. The first thing we're going to do is spend some time acknowledging that there have been some serious pain and sorrow in the lives of our brothers and sisters with inside the family known as South Carolina Baptist. And there's something to be said for corporate lament, for listening, for for coming before the Lord in uh, prayerful remorse over people that have been harmed. Uh, we, we also recognize that we come not as a body of individuals who should be accused of being a part of this type of sinful behavior, but as a body of individuals who say, we want to do something about it. And so the, the next part, of course, has to do with resolutions. As you know, Southern Baptist being a representative body, uh, an evangelical denomination built around missions, um, our messengers over the years have made some historic statements to the onlooking world in our resolutions. Mm -hmm. And so there are uh, uh, two resolutions specifically dealing with sexual abuse in our churches, and we're going to bring those before the messengers. So in the report, there's two resolutions. There's two resolutions. Will That's there be correct. other points that you want to get approved absolutely so so first we'll respond then there are resolutions then then we make a handful of recommendations where we're coming before the state convention uh, as a committee uh, uh, put into place by the messengers in november of this last year uh, where we're making recommendations there are primarily two recommendations that we're making uh, this is really the meat on the bone of, of actual action one of those has to do with staffing our state convention in such a way that it has someone who is trained to help churches and devote their entire energy to this cause 
we think that sends an incredibly strong message. We believe in evangelism, so we have incredible folks down at the state uh, convention building who specialize in helping churches in evangelism. We believe in discipleship, so we have folks who do that. We believe in church planning. So when Baptists believe in something, uh, they staff accordingly. And so this is a recommendation around that. Second recommendation is for our task force to remain in place uh, so that over the next year, as you know, our state convention is in transition. Dr. Gary Hollingsworth, our executive director treasurer, done a fine job, dear friend of yours, dear friend of mine. He's retiring. So we know our convention is in transition. Uh, I, I look for this to be a good transition. I'm, I'm not worried or anxious. So there is an ongoing search for the next executive director treasurer of our convention. Well, with that, we don't want this to become yesterday's news. Uh, we want the proactive efforts that we put forward in here to have some accountability. And so the task force will stay in place for another year, if approved by the messengers. And the final part are our, what, what I would say, we called it a section of resources. And in that, we collected the best practices we could find uh, from a multiplicity of sources to say, what are churches doing well and what do churches need to shore up? And we really worked hard to leverage who we were as a task force. We have survivors on our task force. Uh, we have the parent of survivors. One, one of our uh, gentlemen's uh, son was a victim. We have two attorneys, very successful attorneys, several senior pastors. Uh, we have uh, one uh, lady who serves in one of our fine institutions. Uh, we have um, one lady who serves in strategic planning of one of the mega churches in our state. So a really good cross uh, section of folks. And I released them after several meetings in the spring to spend the summer Go find out what's being done well, what needs to be improved. And then we really worked hard at hammering out the language so that when pastors and leaders who will be at the annual meeting in Columbia leave with this report in their hand and they'll be given a copy of it, if approved, uh, it's not only a report about what some other people are going to do at the state convention level, it's a resource that they can sit down and read through in one setting and ask some questions about what they need to go, how they need to go forward. So this is something that could be an impetus for every church. I mean, there's something here that every church could use. I would be disappointed if every church didn't view this as a great starting point. And again, we've had legal uh, counsel with attorneys on the task force. Whenever we present best practices, we there's a disclaimer there. We're, we're not suggesting that any of these practices are perfect or that they're specifically right for your church. But... We don't have the right to do nothing. And uh, we are interesting in our denominational theology. You know that. We are uh, a group of autonomous churches in the rope of sand, if you will, linked together really around two causes. The history of the Southern Baptist Convention, which you know better than I do, Rudy, is really built around missions and the training of young leaders. So the first thing we did was for mission boards and seminaries and colleges. And so we don't have dictatorial authority over our churches. Each of our churches is, of course, autonomous. But we have incredible unity. We have a lot of really gifted men and women that are listened to by our convention churches. And our churches have asked for this. They want to know. And so, you know, I, I hope and pray that they will receive it in the spirit with which it's given and that they'll just ask the question, where are we today and how do we move the ball to be better next year? and then better the next year. And that's, I think, what our community 
is asking for and what every child, what every woman, what every person with a disability deserves. Well, I think one of the things I'm sure you've run into this, I know you have even before you were chairman of this, maybe when you were president of the convention or trustee down at New Orleans or wherever, uh, a lot of people outside of Southern Baptist life and some inside of Southern Baptist life do not understand Southern Baptists. They don't get our polity. Mm -hmm. So we see secular media reporting on something going on at the convention, and they refer to us as the Southern Baptist Church, mm -hmm. which doesn't exist. That's right. Uh, they don't call us a convention of churches. That's right. And I think there's confusion in minds of people, and something like this comes up, that we're like the Catholic Church and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we top heavy and work down, but we do just the opposite historically in the Southern Baptist Convention. Mm -hmm. So if you run into some of that uh, thinking, uh, maybe not from, from the people on your uh, committee. Uh, well, if, you know, what I would say to Baptists, um, what, what, what I've run into more than that is uh, the concern that producing a document like this would threaten that autonomy that people who would oppose the gospel, people that would want to be critical of our churches would use a document like this as something that they would uh, come at a church and say, well, the Southern Baptist, or the South Carolina Baptist Convention produced this. Why didn't you do it? And I have two responses to that. The, the first response I, I, I would say is, is that if a church, regardless of denomination, if a church claims allegiance to the Bible and the gospel of the Lord Jesus and does nothing to protect children, I want them to be liable. I have no interest in preserving them. I, I think they hurt the cause of the kingdom. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm okay with that. We're glad you joined us for Courier Conversations, where we are informing and inspiring South Carolina Baptists and beyond. For more information about these topics and more, subscribe to our e-edition or go to our website at baptistcourier.com. The Courier is located in Greenville, South Carolina as a multimedia ministry partner of the South Carolina Baptist Convention. To comment about today's podcast, email us at conversations at baptistcourier.com. This podcast produced by Bob Sloan Audio Productions.